So we got attacked by Amazon. And what I mean by attacked is they copied our product, they undercut our price, and we were expecting to die. Because when Amazon does that to a startup, the startup always dies. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the number one show for all things e-commerce, where we get to hear from the best founders, CEOs, and digital leaders today. I'm Stephanie Postles, CEO of Mission.org, and it is time to buckle up for this episode because it was a wild and fun discussion with Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square and Invisibly. And if you're intrigued by that opening quote, well, so was I, and the story behind it is a great one. Plus, if you want to learn how to be a true disruptor, this is your episode. Let's get into it. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steph. I'm really excited you're here. So as you know, we have a lot of commerce company founders, CEOs listening to this show. So I thought the perfect way to start would be to go back to 2014 in your life and talk about what a severed head means to you. <laughs> what a severed head. It means it's Wednesday. <laughs> it's a normal Wednesday for you and you're getting attacked. But yes, I want to hear the story and start there. So we got attacked by Amazon, which if you remember the famous scene from The Godfather where they put the guy's horse's head in his bed, it's what it feels like, except there was an actual head in a bed because I played a joke on Jack. We were actually working out of his apartment. I cut the head off a pinata and put it in Jack's bed. So it's sort of an inside joke, but it's also uh, terrifyingly real because in 2014, Square got attacked by Amazon. And what I mean by attacked is they copied our product, they undercut our price, and we were expecting to die because when Amazon does that to a startup, the startup always dies. And we fought Amazon for about a year. And then miraculously, we didn't die. As a matter of fact, Amazon was the one that gave up. And they, they did it in actually kind of a cool way. They actually gave a little square reader to all their soon-to-be former customers. But this had never happened before. So in other words, a startup had never beaten Amazon. And when I looked at why it happened, I couldn't answer because we hadn't really done anything differently. In other words, we didn't respond to Amazon by changing anything that Square was doing. So the question is, why did we win? And I spent the next two and a half years trying to answer that question. Eventually wrote a book about it because the answer so surprised me that I was like, why didn't anyone ever tell me this when I was making all these mistakes in the past? Yep. Yeah. So I hear that all the time when I talk to these different CEOs who are you know, starting these brands, that they're terrified that Amazon's going to create a white label version of what they're doing and come out really quickly. And many of them have already experienced this. Yeah. What would maybe your advice be around that? Or like, I mean, I know now you've looked back and you kind of know why you ended up prevailing, but what's some high level tips? And we'll be able to get into your book later and dive deeper, but like, yeah, why do you think you did end up winning? So my tip would be, it's not really a bullet list of stuff to do. It is know what side of the line of innovation you're on. In other words, do you have a truly new product? something that has what I call an innovation stack, something that has multiple ways of differentiating itself. If that's the case, you can pretty much ignore Amazon. And I know that's crazy. Like if they copy, it doesn't matter. If you are derivative, in other words, if you're doing something that has been done before and there are trade shows on your topic and there are experts and there are consultants and it's a known ecosystem, you're probably dead. And I, I made a very serious study of this. I'm not, I'm not trying to make light of this, but no company who is a startup survives an Amazon attack unless they have a very unique offering and a unique process that produces that offering. 
in which case you're protected. And if you don't have that, then, you know, hope Jeff writes you a check. Yeah, we had an interesting backpack company on called Peak Design. Oh, yeah. Amazon, essentially. <laughs> yeah, they like white labeled their backpack. And then sure. instead Peak Design was like, they created a whole video of like, sure, you can go with, you know, Amazon's white label. But here's all the things that we do that actually make us what we are. And their video was not only funny, but also just poking a lot of fun at all the shortcuts that I guess they made. I remember that campaign. Yeah. How are they doing now? They're doing great. Yeah. And their backpacks are still awesome. They send our team some. They're great. Um, But yeah, it was actually a fun way to see someone not going towards the competitor and getting lost, like with like competition and aggression and anger. I mean, his approach was very much like we thought it was kind of funny. Of course, it's annoying, but let's make light of it and get some good marketing out of it. And it, it was just fun to see someone handle something instead of being super scared, coming at it in a more fun way. It's okay to be super scared. Yeah. Okay. Like that's a natural reaction. Like if you're doing something and there is low likelihood of survival, fear is an appropriate response. Mm -hmm. So I would love to hear a few stories around the early days of you and Jack Dorsey building Square. I would like to hear some stories maybe that you haven't really shared before, maybe something funny or a time that you were scared and now you look back on, you're like, yeah, that was maybe I shouldn't have been, or maybe I should have been more scared. Just something that you haven't really talked too much about. You know, there's one that I don't talk too much about, although it is in the book. It's the day we pitched MasterCard on the Square product, because at the time, MasterCard and Visa had rules that specifically prevented what Square was doing. In other words, they thought about what we were going to build, had anticipated it, and then said, no, we're going to exclude this from the network. And so it was a case where if we didn't get them to change our rules, we were dead. And this was about a year, year and a half into the company, but we ended up uh, in this meeting with this team at MasterCard, and it was sort of like the demo of our lives. And uh, you know, people are always asking me to you know look at their pitches and help them you know pitch their products better, or make their company pitches better for VCs and stuff. And and you know, the VCs are easy. If you've got a good product, they'll give you money. That's it's it's never been tough to get money out of investors if you're organized. But this was a meeting where there was no backup. If we struck out with Mastercard, it wasn't like we could have pitched Visa because Visa always follows what Mastercard does, and so. We had to make the perfect pitch. And the good thing about being in business with Jack Dorsey is that he is a very thoughtful, quiet guy. And though I am not, I'm also somebody who never interrupts. Like I will never interrupt anybody. And so we're really good when we're pitching because we'll say something and then we'll wait for the other side. And we went through that pitch. We had done our pitch probably 50 times by this point, and we knew it perfectly. And we came to the critical part of the demo where we took the guy's credit card. In this case, it was a MasterCard. We took 20 bucks from him and then said, that $20 will now leave your account and go to our account. And he looked at me and said, you realize you just violated our operating regulations. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And then nobody spoke for like 20 seconds. And normally I would like count to 20 just to let your listeners feel how uncomfortable that is. Yeah. It's a long time of silence. <laughs> it's excruciating, isn't it? That was painful enough right there. You, you probably lost half your listeners right there. I know. Like, the thing's broken. They just dropped off. <laughs> but here's the thing. It took that long for him to sort of come up with his answer. And his answer was, so we have to change our operating regulations. And that was it. Wow. So he looked at his team, left the room, and that was that. The interesting thing about that pitch was that it was literally make or break for the company. And it was a culmination of some really good salesmanship, some really good engineering, and then a pitch that was geared to the audience because MasterCard wants more MasterCard merchants, and we were going to get them millions of more MasterCard merchants. So they should have liked it. But just because somebody should like your product doesn't mean they will like your product. And just because they should do something, like I'm launching a company right now, people should love it. Guess what? They don't yet, you know? Yet. That's not their fault. That's my fault. So yeah, that was probably the most uh, important and least told story about Square. Wow. That's awesome. Was there ever a point when you and Jack were like really ready to give up? I mean, there's a lot of points I know in building a company. I've personally felt this where it's like, oh, it'd be easier to go back to Google Managing a team is a lot of responsibility and a lot of stress on my plate. And there's times where it's hard, but was there ever actually a point where you're like, I'm actually kind of just ready to completely give up and do something different? About six hours into the first day. 
so that was when around lunchtime, I discovered that rule that MasterCard had that said, you absolutely can't do this. Well, actually, I found a couple of laws too that said we shouldn't do what we were doing. But I was like, you know, like there's a rule against exactly what we want to do. And I turned to Jack. I was like, you want to give up? He's like, no, I'm okay with that. And I was like, well, I'm okay with it. You know, I'm a rule breaker. And then we turned to Tristan, who was our only employee. And he was like, you guys going to keep paying me? I was like, yeah, we'll keep paying you. So, okay, fine. You know, we've surveyed the entire company. We're for it. So we went back to work that afternoon. I like, we could have just sort of blown it off and done something else. But frankly, I liked it. I liked the fact that there was this specific reason why it hadn't been done. Because, you know, a lot of times I look at the world and I say, boy, there should be this thing. Why don't we do it this way? And then I can't find it. And, and then I'm like, am I crazy? Or would, am I just the only person in the world that wants like a filter on their email to get rid of all the idiots? Yep. Which, by the way, I previewed for the first time today, an idiot filter on email. How is it? It's the best thing in the world. It's awesome. It's actually called the idiot filter? <laughs> no, no. It's called PayMail. <laughs> okay. This is the first time I've ever seen it. But email used to be great. Okay. Like when you first got it, it was like, wow, it's fantastic. And then the spammers got a hold of it and spamming was rampant. And then email was terrible. And then Gmail came along with this awesome spam filter. And then email became great again, right? So now you had good email. But slowly what's happened since the release of Gmail like 20 years ago is the spammers and the weasels have figured out that if they know your name and your email, they can write this script that writes you some solicitations like, hey, Jim, saw you were looking for some uh, Pega programmers. We happen to have a few people. If you got a minute, I'd be happy to talk. I get 15 of those a day. So I counted, Steph, 70% of my inbox is that sort of It's not spam. It didn't get caught by the spam filter, but it's this So I was like, man, if I just made them pay a nickel, just a nickel to send me their email, I bet you all of these guys would go away. I don't block the domains of the companies that I know. Like it automatically yeah. creates this whitelist for you so you're not blocking your grandma. Then I don't care if anybody else in the whole world uses it, but I'm going to release it to everybody because look, I think everybody ought to get their time back. Yeah. I hate people wasting my time. But that's an example of me being very self-centered and sort of unaware of how other people really feel. And so it's easy to get that way when you're creating a product, you think, oh, everyone should be doing this. But it turns out, no, they shouldn't because they think differently than you do. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I always like there's, I forget who made this poster where it shows like every week you have up until maybe you're 90 or something. And it actually looks very small, like your life in one poster. And you start marking on there like, oh, this is when my kids turn 18 on this point. And this is when maybe, you know, whatever big events there are. And you can just see it all in one poster. I don't know if you've ever heard about this poster before. It's terrifying. Yeah. It's very scary. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's also very motivating. Like whenever I look at that and think about that of like, how will I use today? And I think getting back your time is actually the perfect example. Like it's not self-centered. It's like, I only have so much and I can see that every single day. This is exactly right. And I think we're all pretty good stewards of our own time if we are given the chance to be. The problem is that so much of our queue is not created by us. It's created by others. So my inbox is like this to-do list. You know, if you make it into my inbox, if you somehow figure out that my email is jim at invisibly.com, I just told all your listeners what my email is. Well, <laughs> sorry, folks, you're going to have to pay. No, but like if you figure that out and you send me this email, like you just gave me a to-do. Now, maybe the only thing I have to do is delete it because I don't recognize you. But, you know, then there's like that weird email from my doctor or some friend or like, you know, somebody who I actually like who gets in there. Like, I actually have to spend a little time looking. Even your stupid email that I will delete and never read, I have to pay some attention to. Yeah. And that, that drains me. And then, you know, take the world of social media or the feeds that we're subjected to. And it's 10 times worse because then what's happening is your attention is being routed to subjects that are for the benefit of the platform. So I'll give you an example. Facebook figured out that you're more engaged if you're pissed off. Mm -hmm. yep. This is well known. Yeah. You look very calm about that. Oh, yeah, I know. That's why I got off Facebook. I'm like, all the incentives on these platforms are not what I want to be here for. I do not want to 
puts the force no. behind this. So yeah. Right. So it's in their interest to keep you on longer. You're on longer if you're upset. So it's in their interest, therefore, to upset you. And guess what? They're really good at that because they know what you like and they know what you don't like. And they know what you really don't like. So they're going to send you news to make you feel good until they feel you're about to leave. And then they're going to piss you off. And then you're going to stay for another 20 minutes and they're going to make some more money off you. But is that good for you? And the funny thing, this is the funny thing I love. It's called a news feed. And the word feed always sort of bothered me. I've got a friend who owns a feedlot. Do you know what a feedlot is? So what happens to a cow is it kind of grazes and eats a bunch of grass. Uh, and then when it gets ready to become a hamburger... What they do is they round them up and they shove them in these little detention camps. Mm, And then they just make the cows eat corn in the best case, but like anything, any like anything you could get a cow to eat, Mm -hmm. they do. And it's 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 horrible for the cow. You should eat grass fed. Well, yeah, maybe. (laughs) But like we can argue about the ethics of meat here. But here's the thing. The cow gets free food. Okay, it is free. But. They're just fattening you up to kill you. And that's what a feedlot is. And my news feed feels a lot like a feedlot because I know that the platforms are not sitting there. It's like, oh, what's best for Jim? Like, has he had a rough couple of days? Should we just show him like things that make him feel good, things that make him feel positive about the world, things that, you know, inspire him or or maybe maybe an article about, you know, spending more time with your kids as opposed to, you know, learning about the latest crypto, whatever. They're not sitting there saying, how do we help this guy out? How do we make his world wonderful? What they're saying is, how do we get the next incremental revenue from McKelvey's eyeballs or from his thumbs or from his wallet? And that's not in my interest. So the other product that I'm hoping Invisibly is going to release this month, and I just saw an alpha of that last week, is a news feed where you get to control it. It's like all these articles, 5,000 articles a day in English, including most of the news that you use. All of AP is in there and a bunch of other stuff. And it's all free, no paywalls, no ads. Most importantly, though, you control the feed. And that's the thing that I don't, I don't think anyone's even going to appreciate the last thing. Like the last thing is the most important. I say no paywall. They go, oh, cool. I say no ads. They go, oh, cool. I say you're in control. They go, what? Because they're used to being delivered stuff to them and it's convenient and easy to look at what's in front of you. So imagine a cow who's been used to having their head in a trough and just be shoveled, you know, roundup ready corn kernels being led out into a pasture and say, go be a cow again. I don't know that a lot of the cows would do it. Like, I, I think I don't know that they, I, you know, I'm. I should go to my friend's feedlot and take a look at this. Like, I don't know if they actually have the to- The right cows might. I don't know if they have to force the cows to eat. Like, that's the, that's the real question for me. Like, I think this product may be the biggest dud I've ever launched, or it might be a huge hit. I don't know. Like, I honestly don't know if we're so far gone that we don't even want control anymore, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders, distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. That sounds epic, and I would definitely use it. I want to hear about Invisibly then, because we're talking about all these different products that you're launching, but I want to hear about Invisibly, higher level, you know, what is the company and what motivated you to build it? I was recruited by a bunch of media companies to try to help them save journalism. They all got together and said, we're starving to death. This was in 2016. And I remember it was the Pokemon craze. Remember Pokemon? Like you had to, you can like cross a street. I was working back at Google then and everyone at Google was on the Everybody. campus. Everybody. Oh I was my like, God. oh my gosh, what are y'all doing? Look up. Yeah, but in, in, on the Google campus, all you have to worry about is those like quad bicycles. I know. Like, you just don't want like, <laughs> like I'm in St. Louis and people were getting hit in the streets because they're like, oh, there's one in the middle of, boom, you know. So anyway, during the Pokemon craze, the publishers of the world, not the publishers, but like the old publishers, this was like all the old media companies and I, I shouldn't list their names because they were very secretive about the meeting. But I'm sure people can guess. (laughs) Yeah, you can guess. They're all starving to death now. They invited me to this meeting and they said, 
can you help us build a new model for saving journalism? Because I made some statements about this. Like, oh, I know how to fix this. I just don't think anyone will ever, ever want to do it. And like, okay, what do we do? And I was like, well, there are only three ways you can pay for the stuff that you consume. And if we're talking content, you can sell ads, okay, which is how most of the stuff you consume is created. It's by ads. You can sell subscriptions. So that's Netflix and Disney Plus and all those, you know, subscription service. Or you can do pay-per-view. Pay-per-view has never worked. And the problem with pay-per-view is that on a tiny, tiny scale, like let's say I want to read one article. Well, a typical article makes about a penny for the publisher. In other words, you show me the article littered with ads and all those ads added together nets out to about one cent for the publisher. That's for a good article. That's a, that's a penny. Okay. Now the question is, would you pay a penny to see that same article without ads? And that survey and that block up and that other question and all like, and, and the answer is, well, some would, some wouldn't. Okay. And the answer is, well, if I'm the sort of person who would rather, you know, give you a buck and then the next hundred things that I read come to me without interruption, okay, I'll give you the dollar. But there are people who say, well, wait a second, I want everything to be free. I don't want to give you the dollar. And in which case I say, okay, now I'll give you a choice. I can either have this ad that is served up by some random ad server, or I can let you share information in a way that makes you way more valuable to advertisers. Only information you care to share. Like, you want to tell me your sexual orientation? Fine. I don't care what pronoun you use. Like, doesn't make a difference to me. But if that's important to you, share it. If it's not important to you, don't share it. Like, you tell us what we can trade with, and then we'll trade. And, And we'll go out as an agent on your behalf to negotiate with you the ads that you get to see. And, you know, you tell me what you're about. We'll share that information. We'll see what your eyeballs are worth. And that's a way more efficient process. So if you actually do that, what you find out is that 80% of the money that is currently lost to the platforms and intermediaries and middlemen goes to the people who make the content. And a second really cool thing happens. And this is, this is the thing that blows people's minds. You get to pay more for good stuff and less for Wait, how are you paying more for good stuff? Is it because on the back end, you're making sure that whatever ads they see actually matches up to what they selected? No, it's a free economy. So in other words, the price of an article varies based on how good the article is. Got it. And we can figure that out for you based on your usage without having to ask you because we see you read it. We see how long you spend on it. We can pretty much say, oh, Stephanie's really into this or she's not without ever having to bother you. And then at the end, we show you what you've paid for stuff. And if we've ever get it wrong, you can say, well, that's, I, that was, I was just reading that because I was angry. And you can say, I want a refund for that. You know, we'll give you your money back. But like the idea is that if you have millions of users, which we don't have yet because this is brand new stuff, but like eventually when we have millions of users, there will be a market for this. And what will happen in that ecosystem is the thing that saves journalism, which is the following. Some person who creates a great piece of content will earn more money than somebody who creates an equally long piece of content that's not as good. So here's the problem with the ad model as it's practiced today. Well, okay, okay, so I just wrote a book. I spent three years writing a book. Okay, the reason it took me three years to write the book is because I rewrote the thing eight times. You're reading the eighth draft of the innovation stack if you read my book. And it went through eight revisions because every time it got better, and it got shorter. And I'd read it and I go, I can make it better. I can better, I can say that more succinctly. I can cut that out. And it got shorter and tighter and better. And there's no incentives for that anywhere else right now, I feel like, in the content game. Right. Like you look at the little flip stories where it's like, here's a PowerPoint of a hundred things if you want to see the best of list. And you're literally like clicking through it, or it's like read time, 10 minutes. And you're like, well, all this actually isn't helpful, but there is no incentives to create short stuff like that and go through it and cut bad stuff out. And that's right. That's right. So the question is how do we bring back the incentive to edit, to create quality, to distill quality? You know, I'm not going to run out of anything except time. That, like, that's what that 90-year calendar is. That's basically a reminder that the first thing we all run out of humans is not money, it's time. So how do I make better use of my time? And the answer is I consume things more efficiently, but I can't do that by myself. The producer has to do that. And the producer is only going to do that if they're paid to do that. And if I have a piece of content that's perfectly good and 10 minutes long, it's good. I could make it better and cut it down to five minutes, but then I've just cut my advertising revenue in half. So no sane producer is going to do it. They're just going to make it good enough 
and belch it out there. I want to live in a world where I can say, look, I'll pay you twice as much if you make that thing half as long. And that's what the micropayments economy can do. Mm, I love that. So right now I'm hearing that, you know, it's a lot of the readers or users who would be opting in and potentially paying and then the creators over here getting the payment. Will there ever be a point when there is like an intermediary too who also has the incentives to help with that? Or do you like the more kind of distributed semi like decentralized model where it's just the creators and the users? Ah, this is going to be a distributed <laughs> autonomous organization. Okay. I'm a central banker. I'm chair <laughs> of the Fed. I believe in central institutions. That's true. Okay. You're biased. I guess I can't ask that. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I mean, look, I, okay, so let me just defend the Federal Reserve for a minute. We do know there's inflation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, do, we're working on it. You can't just pull these levers instantaneously. Okay, I'm not, I'm not on the FOMC, so I can just shut up about that. But here's the thing. It's good to have regulated financial institutions. It's good to have law enforcement. It's good to have rules, okay? It's good for me to be able to send money to somebody and if all of a sudden I discover that there's some sort of problem, that I have some recourse. And it's good that if I go into a bank, that isn't some sort of like fake bank, you know, with fake ATMs that I put my money in and then it disappears. Well, we want regulation. And I think what Invisibly is going to try to do is we're going to try to stand up a regulator at the center of this thing that is invisible. You don't have to worry about it. But it is built for the right reasons, and it's built to essentially preserve your control of your attention. Because that's the thing that defines who we become. Yep. You are who you are with. You are what you read. You are what you watch. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I want to shift over and talk about your book because it looks really interesting. I have not read it yet, but I really want to. So I want to start with where did this book come from? Like, why did you want to write this? It came from Herb Kelleher. (laughs) Okay, tell me more. So- Here's what happened. I did all this research on how Square beat Amazon, and I saw this pattern. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, it it just explained 20 years of my life. And not like a good 20 years. It's like 20 years of like, oh, oh, my God. I made that mistake again. Oh, I made it again. Oh, I didn't see it again. And I felt like such an idiot. But the problem was, the way I figured this out was I studied history. Did all this research on companies that were founded by people who are long since gone. But one of the guys who I was studying was Southwest Airlines, and Herb Kelleher was still alive. So I called him up out of the blue, and I was like, Mr. Kelleher, would you talk to me about this? He's like, yeah, come to Dallas. So I spent a wonderful day with Herb Kelleher in Dallas, Texas, wow. at Southwest Airlines, with him smoking up you know, a storm <laughs> and telling me all this stuff. And we were discussing like what happened at Square, what happened at... Uh, Southwest. And and then he was on the Fed and I'm on the Fed. I was like this awesome older brother that I'd never met until, you know, late. And um, at the end of the meeting, I, I, I was like, well, what do you what do you think? Like, is this right? He's like, yeah. He's like, how are you going to share this with the world? And I was like, uh, I was just talking to you to figure out if you agreed with me. And he was like, no, no, no. How are you going to share this with the world, Jim? Like, how are you going to get this out there? And I was like, oh, I just got a homework assignment from like my business idol. (laughs) So I thought about writing a book. I was basically not going to do it because writing is excruciating for me. But when Herb Kelleher tells you to write and gives you his time and his tales to share, Mm -hmm. I do it. Why did you go to Herb? Like, what was it about him? What about Southwest Airlines interested you? Why were you like, oh, I really want to go run this by him? Oh, so Southwest was really interesting because it was a little startup airline that should have been crushed by Braniff and Texas International and United. And, and like everybody copied Southwest. I remember you, do you remember an airline called TED? Yes, yeah. So TED has the distinction of being the most successful competitor to Southwest and they died. And so did Song and so did all the other ones. Like there were a dozen of these things. Nobody could copy Southwest. And these were airlines that had been studying this company for 20 years and they, they knew how to fly planes. They, they knew the airline industry. These were not dumb people, but they couldn't pull it off. And Amazon couldn't copy Square. And all the companies that tried to rip off Ikea couldn't copy Ikea. And all the companies that tried to copy uh, the Bank of Italy when they were growing couldn't copy Bank of Italy. And I, I found these patterns again and again and again of these little companies that survived against tremendous odds. And I was like, well, what's behind it? And it turns out it's not some genius founder. It's not some you know sort of magic trick. It's the fact that at their core, they were doing something that had never been done before. 
And because of that, they were forced to invent. And I say forced to invent because invention, in my opinion, and I can back this with statistics if someone needs, should really be a last resort. If you're trying to solve a problem, better to find somebody else who solved it before you and copy what they did, but that doesn't work if it's never been solved. And so the reason I wrote the book and the reason I spent so much time rewriting and rewriting and now promoting this silly book is because we need millions of people who are willing to take that moment and step across that line from the known to the unknown. And in the unknown, it is going to be uncomfortable. You are going to be afraid. You are probably going to fail. Like it's probably not going to work. Sorry, there's no checklist for that. I can't sit there and give you some sort of, oh, you know, seven bullet points to be sure that you become the next billion dollar star. No, it doesn't exist. Okay. But what I can do is explain what it's like on that other side of the line, unpleasant as it is. And, and the rules are different. This is the thing that blew my mind. The way you pay people is different. The way you, re you recruit people is different. The way you build products is different. Like all these rules change once you leave the world where you can safely copy the solution. And nobody had ever written about that because, uh, well, frankly, in the, in the English language, we don't even have a word. We don't have a word in English for somebody who creates something new in business. We have the word entrepreneur, which means somebody who starts a business. But what if that business is a coffee shop? Hey, we've had coffee shops done before. Like, I mean, I've got a friend who's a coffee shop consultant. You want to start a coffee shop? Call him. His name's Howard. He'll set you up. He, set, he helped set up Blue Bottle. Like, the guy's at Blue Bottle called Howard. And now it's Blue Bottle, right? Howard's the guy. A coffee shop is not a business where you need to be an inventor. You need to be hardworking. You need to do all your stuff. You need inventory. You probably need a great point of sale system, in which case I would suggest one. But you don't need to be creative. So I guess, how do you, I mean, I'm sure people listening are like, okay, how do you know whether you're in the point where you should be copying something and you're like, or I've done all the research. What's all the research? How do you really know? Oh no, how I now, I now need to invent. Like to me, it's like this weird middle spot that I know I find myself in sometimes where I'm like, no one's done it, but have I done all the research? Like there's gotta be more. Someone has to be doing this. So at some point you have to terminate the research and just say, I'm just going to build it. Which is why on that first day at Square, we were so excited to find the law. Like I was psyched to find the law that prevented our company from existing because it explained why none of the other, oh, oh, look, everybody who's gotten to this point before us has quit because they found this law and they go, well, forget it. And Jack and I were like, oh, cool. Let's keep going. Yep. Right. So we ended up breaking 17 laws. I mean, in t I, it could have been more than 17. I stopped counting at 17. When, when the number hit 17, I was like, that's enough. But what happened while you were breaking those laws? Like, did you get in trouble? Did someone reach out and be like, Jim, chill? Breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> no, what happened was we looked at them and said a lot of these are like, you know, the sodomy laws from the 40s. You know, you're like, uh, it's illegal for two men to be roommates. Uh, what? Like, I mean, there are still laws on the books that say, you know, you can have a chicken you know, in your apartment, but you can't, yeah. there's just an incredible, we don't have a way of cleaning the law up. So we looked at some of these and we're like, well, that's stupid. That doesn't apply. And everyone's using computers and, you know, nobody sends faxes anymore. Yeah. We, we looked at some of these and said, got it. and then okay. some of them we looked at, we said, okay, that would totally make sense. So we need to do it. We just don't have time to do it now. So those are the compliance laws. And then others were like, our only chance of survival is to get MasterCard to change this one, mm -hmm. you know, and then hope yep. that Visa copies them, which they did. So, Got it. but you don't know. And Stephanie, if I can unpack your question a little bit yeah, more. Yeah, go for it. Yes. What you just asked for in a very polite, <laughs> very sweet way. Is, I like to be polite, you know. Jim, please give me the checklist that guarantees yeah. that I'm going to succeed. Well, no, I don't want the checklist. <laughs> I want the feeling. I want where it's like, you will feel this type of way if you encounter something that should be innovated on. You will oh, see oh, oh. laws. Yeah, I don't need a oh. checklist. Yes, I want like... What will that feel like? Oh, oh, I can, I can actually help you with that. Yeah, okay. You'll feel... Horrible. <laughs> for me, I get angry. I get okay. very upset. I get pissed off. Okay. I was upset this morning when Expedia took my money. They're basically not going to give me my money back. Yeah. Lufthansa canceled the flight, but Lufthansa won't answer the phone. And when you do get them on the phone, they say you have to call Expedia. 
And then you get Expedia on the phone and they say, we can't do it because it's a Lufthansa ticket. You have to call Lufthansa. And you're like, wait a second, guys, neither one of you are talking to each other. So they're going to keep my money. Okay. And I felt so angry and so powerless. And I was like, this is exactly how I felt when I was a little small business trying to deal with the credit card companies who were stealing money from me. And I knew it, but I couldn't prove it. So in my case, it was anger. The first step is anger. There you go. Just got to recognize it. <laughs> What's the second step? It's more anger. Okay. <laughs> and the third step is this moment where you sit there and say, I guess nobody's fixed this yet. And then you have this choice. And this is, this is where that line comes in. Nobody's done it. And I know that if I step across from the world of what is known to the world of what is unknown, I'm going to feel uncomfortable, scared, lonely. I mean, you're going to feel all sorts of pretty negative things. But that's how new gets created. Yeah. When I hear that, though, I think about the anger and then, you know, disruption. And I mean, living back in the Bay Area, it's like everyone was always just trying to disrupt everyone. And a lot of times it felt like to me, it was like out of anger. I did an entire chapter on disruption because the interesting thing that I found, I'll give you the, the cliff notes here. The companies who built innovation stacks didn't disrupt the industries that they were in. So Southwest Airlines started and became the largest, most profitable airline in the US, in US history. You know who's still around? United Airlines. Hmm. American. And they just grew the pie bigger. Yeah. You know, like Square started. Well, who's still around? Visa, MasterCard, you know, Heartland, for God's sake. You know, they were almost bankrupt when we started and they're still stronger than they ever been. Like, we didn't disrupt anything. We just made it possible for millions of new people to experience this thing that previously only the elite had. You know, the elite businesses had credit cards and the elite travelers could travel by air and everybody else was stuck with cash or Greyhound bus. Yep. Okay. Now I definitely need to read the books. I'm like, I feel like that's where my brain is popping around to right now. Like, okay, thinking about all the people who were starting startups back then and, you know, looking for the older industries. And so if you don't want to read the book, I want to read the book, Jim. I am going to read the book. I have it in a cartoon format. Oh, that's kind of fun too. Although I'll still read the book. I have it as a graphic novel. So you go to jimmckelvey.com. <laughs> you can download for free because I know you don't want to spend any money. I put part of the book online as, as a graphic novel. So. Okay. Have you seen traction on that or what was your thoughts putting it into a comic? So uh, my thought was that I didn't want to write a business book because they suck and they're boring and I can't read them. And so I thought, well, these stories are really epic. I mean, I've got Nazis and death camps and I've got murder. Jeez. Uh, I have uh, nudity. I have uh, destruction of a major city. Like these are the stories that I tell in the book. Like, you know, San Francisco burns to the ground and all the bank safes melt in these lumps of iron. Like it's, this is comic book material. So I did the whole thing as a graphic novel thinking, oh, this will be a way better way of ingesting this information. And then um, I called Herb Kelleher and I was like, Herb, I got the book for you, man. I did it. This is like a year and a half into it. And Herb hated the idea. He was like, I can't believe you would be so stupid. And I was crestfallen. He was like, he's like, if you're going to do that, just leave me out. Wow. And I was really upset. And then I thought about it. And my first thought was, no, no, when he sees it, he'll change his mind. Right. But then he died before I could show him how cool it was. Mm -hmm. And so out of respect for what he told me, I rewrote the whole thing as a, as, as, as a comic-free book. Um, there are still some really filthy jokes in the book, uh, one of which my, my editor didn't catch. But it's a book. But the, the comic version, like part of the comic version lives on. And, and oh, 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 let me... Uh, let me not tell you the story. Let me tell you why the story is important. So the reason Herb was right, the reason I am dedicated, wish, I wish he was alive so I could thank him, was that if I had written it as a comic book or a graphic novel, in case you went to college, who is the protagonist of the comic? It's the superhero. And how are we like superheroes? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not. Like, I am not a superhero. I don't have yeah. any extraordinary abilities. Like, I don't have any superpowers. Oh, man. I do in my head. There you go. The fact is the superhero tale is one that excludes every man. And the thing that I found, the interesting thing about my research was 
these stories, the, 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 these companies that were world-changing companies were all started by very normal folks. They weren't even Mensa members. They couldn't even spell right in some cases. Like these were just normal, goofy folks who found themselves in sort of extraordinary circumstances and then stumbled on this thing, this innovation stack that gives them that superpower. So that's the way to tell the story. It's not, don't tell a superhero story. Tell the everyman story. Tell the story of how the every everyman becomes as powerful as the superhero. I mean, you know, like we got people who've become so powerful, they got their own space programs now. Yeah. I mean, my God. But some of those people also, I think, had interesting background. So we, our whole first podcast we did was called The Story. And it was basically to show the unknown story of people who changed the world and we left their identity hidden until the climax. Because a lot of those people that people look at now where they're like, so successful, Elon Musk, blah, blah, blah. They actually had very humble beginnings of how they started. And I think, I mean, the media especially misses out on a lot of those early days. Even Jeff Bezos, like when you look at it, like there's a lot of the story there that I think people just jump right to like where they're at today. And so, I mean, I love what you're talking about around the superhero and why that's usually not even us and it's so far-fetched. Yeah. But yeah, I think even people today are kind of portrayed as superheroes when I'm like, I don't know if they all were. And I think they had a history there and a lot of failed attempts. Like, you know, the person who created Angry Birds, how many times did it take to create Angry Birds? 52 attempts. Like, no one knows That's that. why the birds were so angry. They're so angry yeah. by the 50-second attempt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, by the 50-second attempt, you are pretty pissed off. <laughs> I mean, look, we... And this gets back to the feed, okay? Get, get, getting back to the feed and why we should not be fed, why we should be, why we should be choosing from a menu as opposed to, you know, the cow in the grain bin. And the answer comes back to this. You should be in control because you will choose better for yourself. And you should be able to make choices like encounter a problem that's never been solved before and, and know what it's like to step across that line. And that's my whole reason for writing the book is because if we can get you know, a million people, that's sort of my goal. I want to, get a, I want to reach a million people and get them to understand that most of these super companies are created by normal folks just like them who were in a situation probably similar to the situation they're in and they chose to step across this line or in some cases were thrown across it you know they didn't choose to they were just like oh crap look what happened i guess i better either die or not die well i'm really excited to check it out so it's called the innovation stack yes okay yes Thank you for sharing all this. So I want to hear a contrarian thought of yours, but it can't be around um, invisibly. Like it can't be around square. I want it to be something else that you're kind of, you know, you talk to people about and many don't agree with you on this thought, but it can't be around, like I said, invisibly or um, square. Oh my God. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure a lot of people are disagreeing with you on maybe invisibly, I'm sure, because it's so new and so different. And a lot of people disagreed with you on Square in the early days. So yes, you definitely have contrarian thoughts around that. But this has to be like a different industry or thought or can be personal. Oh, yes. Here's a great one. Since you've got, got business listeners, I always open with my best. Oh, I shouldn't tell people. Oh, well, in almost all cases, I open with my best offer and it gets worse from there. Okay. I have not heard that before. Like, what's the split going to be? 60-40. I get the 60, you get the 40. Hey, that's not fair, Jim. I bring a lot more than 40%. I need a new offer. Okay, how about 70-30? Because I've thought about it some more, and you're right, I was too generous. I'm always, always too generous on the first mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and I always walk back my first offer if they want to keep talking. Yep, okay. That's so stupid to do. It mm -hmm. blows up a lot of negotiations, but um, it's how I bought my house. You put in the best offer? <laughs> I put in a great offer, there and the go. guy was like, we need to talk, and I was like, yeah, here's my new offer. Oh, and it went down. And he was like, he was like, you don't, you don't do that. And I was like, well, yeah, because now that I'm thinking about it, you know, Omicron is spiking, the housing market is crashing, and you're sitting on a piece of real estate that uh, nobody's looked at in two years. So thanks for giving me the time to think about it. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not preaching that. I'm not telling you that's a good way to behave. Yeah. I've never read that in a book. It's just that I don't know what I got started doing that. I, I, I've been doing this for years. So it's kind of like by accident that you started doing that? It's just you, just your personality? Well, I was I was sick of the back and forth. I was sick yeah. of the haggle. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll do this, then I'll do this. I'll do, you know, because you, know, you, you go buy a trinket in a bazaar overseas somewhere where there's a culture of negotiation. I suck at it. 
Uh-huh. I might need one of these things, but you haggle back and forth and it's this crazy. And I was like, wow, that's wildly inefficient. And by the way, it, it, it favors the extroverted personality type. So if you're an introvert, if you're a little shy, I mean, then, you know, you just do without, you know, my wife is like, we don't, we don't need saffron. And I'm like, but we're in the Middle East. Let's fill our pockets with saffron. She's like, I, I don't know how to buy it. You know, she's, she doesn't want to do it. So I got that way. And it's funny, but it either concludes the negotiations really fast or it blows them up. Yeah. You know, the other thing, I guess, is I think also you should, all, you should always leave a lot of value on the table. Like whenever you're dealing with the other person, you shouldn't go to your absolute minimum, best and final offer. You sit there and say, look, I want to leave enough for you so that when the natural problems happen in this relationship, you're still incentivized to stay in it, right? Because there's going to be problems. We just don't know what they are, and one of us is going to be ahead. But yeah, I think it's a good way to go. But it's, it sure saves me a ton of time. Yep. Yeah. Once again, it's all around time. Okay. So my actual last question now is I want to hear your thoughts okay. on Web 3.0. I mean, I'm sure you've thought about this a lot when it comes to Invisibly, and it's something a lot of um, CEOs who come on the show, we've been kind of discussing of like, how can a company play in Web 3.0, you know, and how do you actually get enough information from your the users there to be able to showcase things they want. And so it feels like the Wild West for a lot of companies thinking about it right now. So I want to hear your thoughts on what that looks like, even though I know it's still you know, pretty nascent, but where do you see that going? So I hope it's the Wild West and I hope it's not Westworld. I hope not. <laughs> like it's either going to be this thing where it is sort of lawless for a while and we figure it out and eventually settle wonderful states like Utah and, you know, Nevada, or it's going to be Westworld where I'm likely to get shot by a robot. That's the metaverse then, right? Yeah. I mean, like <laughs> Facebook scares the hell out of me. <laughs> I, I am holding out judgment and I'm just hoping that we come up with some way. Look, you need some laws. I'm not saying you don't need law. I'm a law abiding and these days law enforcing person. You know, as a, as a Fed person, I technically am a bank regulator. I'm not allowed to own bank stocks, you know, totally for law, totally for law. But I am not for corporate law. I am for democratic law. As inefficient as democracy is, I think it's sort of the best system we've got for sort of administering these things. So I'm hoping that what evolves will be governed by some rules and will be open to all and will not be monetized the way the platforms currently are, which is by turning you into the product. You don't want to be the cow on my friend's farm. What we want for ourselves, at the very least, is control over the things we put in our bodies, both the food and the information. So let's start with the very, very first step in that process, which is instead of being fed, let me hand you a menu. The menu's got 5,000 items on it every day. It's got the entire AP newsfeed. It's got Wall Street Journal. It's got, well... I'm not going to list all the publishers because we haven't signed all the contracts yet, but it's going to have a lot of them, okay? And they're all going to give you the stuff, not for free, but for a cost that's so cheap, you won't even notice it because we're going to give you a bunch of free money to sign up for this thing. And by the time you notice that you've spent $5 worth of value, you're going to be a month into using this thing and you go, oh, wait, all that was only 5 bucks." What's incentivizing the publishers to go with you all? Because I'm like, they're all... A lot of them, aren't they supported through ads or subscriptions or something? They probably would be making more money. No, no, no. It turns out we're paying them at least twice as much as they're earning from their ads. Got it. The terrible thing, Steph, is that the money that actually gets to the publishers, if you net it out, is so paltry that a penny, like if I, if I pay only a penny for an article, that publisher is making more than the fraction of the penny that they would make on the ads. Like it's about a quarter cent for a lot of you know, sort of popular articles. Quarter of a penny is what a typical news article gets. Well, let's pay them a penny. They've just 4 x their money. You know, if it's a good article, let's pay them, an, you know, three cents. Holy, you know, that's 12x. Got it. Could they shut down the ads that they're doing now and just circulate the traffic back to Invisibly? They could. Economically, they could. Well, yeah, I mean, or go to any place that, that you know, that uses our protocol to wipe out these ads. I'm not trying to create a new platform you got to go to. Okay. You know, you got to let me put a couple of software products out, but eventually we're just going to get the hell out of the way. Got it. The basic idea here is that then you can support these publishers in a way that incentivizes them to make really good stuff. Because right now what happens when a publisher breaks an article, 
and everybody copies it, the publisher who actually did all the research and work to pay the reporter to actually report that, they don't get most of the money. In our system, they would. And that's, that's good. That's what you want. You want to pay more for the people who make the stuff. And then your other question about subscriptions. Look, in the English language, there are only five publications that make money from subscriptions. Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Economist, and the Financial Times. If it is not one of those five, they're making money through ads. And the ads aren't supporting the quality that we need. And the ads, more importantly, are not reflecting our interests because they only see the stuff that gets surfaced through feeds, which is a disaster. So step one, forget about all the ads, forget about all the economics, forget about that micropayments that's confusing you. Just come to invisibly.com and take control of how you ingest you know, news and articles for now. Like let that sink in for a month and see how you feel out in the sunlight a little bit where you're choosing what you put in your head as opposed to having Facebook's algorithms jam it in there for you. Yeah, well, I will be. If you don't have any users yet, I will be there, Jim. You will see my name there. No, no, we, we haven't released it yet. Like it's, <laughs> I mean, but by the time this airs, we will have it. So invisibly.com. And hopefully it's not just a disaster, but I, be great. you know, it's software, folks. I'm super excited. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, well, Jim, this has been an all-encompassing interview. Really fun to sit here and talk with you. Where can people learn more about what you're up to other than on invisibly.com, other than buying your book, The Innovation Stack? Where else can they find you? Uh, so jimmckelvey.com is a website that I put up to talk about some stuff. I'm sorry, I'm not on social media. That's okay. So I would say follow me on Twitter. But if you do, you will end up following my PR agency, <laughs> which will try to trick you into buying books. Does Jack approve of this method that you're doing? <laughs> or do you guys ever no, go ahead? No, okay, just no, wondering. Jack, Jack hates that I do this. <laughs> but here's the problem, and I've told him this. I'm too competitive. So look, Jack and I disagree on this because he's disciplined. He gets up every day. He tells you what he's having for breakfast, or in this case now, not eating ever. But he is very diligent. I don't have that level of diligence. Plus, I'm too competitive, so I would always be worried if I, you know, you know, can I say something clever? Can I get more followers? Can I be bigger than so-and-so? And I, ugh, who wants to spend their life doing that? So I don't use, I don't use any social media. I've never used a Facebook product in my life, with the exception of three people that have called me on WhatsApp. I think that's a good thing. You should have a badge for that. That's good. But that's it. Three calls wow. on WhatsApp. We'll find you on your website then. But yeah, Jim, thanks again for taking the time. This is great. Thanks, Steph. All the best. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.